Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. What does Jesus promise us when we pray? Well, on today's program, we continue our series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. So let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld as we learn a powerful lesson in prayer. I'm reading Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, in Martin Luther's table talk, which is a record of what was said in Luther's home around his kitchen table when, when pastors from all over Europe often joined him for biblical conversations and for prayer, one day, Luther's puppy happened to be at the table. He squatted on his back legs the way that a dog will do, and he's looking for a morsel from his master. The dog was motionless, eyes fixed solidly on Luther. Clearly, he was waiting expectantly. Luther, in turn, was watching the dog, and then he said, Oh, if I could only pray the way this dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are concentrated on the piece of meat. Otherwise, he has no thought, wish, or hope. You know, that's not a bad illustration of exactly what Jesus is speaking of in today's passage. But before we get into the details, let's clear out a few possible misconceptions so that we're all on the same page and know exactly what it is that we're talking about. First, there are still some Bible teachers who insist that this passage speaks about asking, seeking, and knocking, not of God, but of fellow human beings. In their opinion, this passage is about expecting kindness from others. After all, they say, hasn't Jesus just taught us about not judging others, and therefore, Jesus' disciples should take the initiative to let others know their needs, and they're going to be surprised by how people respond when asked. You know, but this can't possibly be the right interpretation of this passage. A careful study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount shows that from chapter 6 onward, the focus of everything is on God. Don't allow your religious devotion to fan into the flames of pride, Jesus taught. Do everything you do before God, not people. And then when praying, pray this way, Our Father who is in heaven, and then, don't be anxious about anything. Rather, trust God to provide all your needs. That's the wider context of all that Jesus was teaching now. And so the asking, seeking, and knocking that Jesus is talking about is asking, seeking, and knocking before God, not before people. Now, second, another important issue has to be dealt with, and it's the use of the word everyone in verse 8. When Jesus says, everyone who asks receives, is that to be taken as a promise for the entire human race? Now, the answer must be that the use of the term everyone must be restricted, or to put it another way, the everyone refers to everyone in a certain subgroup. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that from the wider context of the Bible. Consider Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The Bible makes no promise of answers to prayer to those who have no covenant with God. 
As long as we're in our unconverted state, in which we are, as Ephesians 2, 3 describes it, by nature the children of wrath, God is placed in no position where he must answer those who have no covenant of forgiveness and mercy. What makes the atoning death of Christ on our behalf so meaningful is that we are translated from darkness into light and suddenly become adopted into children of God. Our relationship with God changes our expectation that God will answer us. Now, God may answer the prayers of an unbeliever. Isaiah 59 doesn't say he never does. In fact, Isaiah 59 only says to Israel as as they prayed to God to deliver them from their enemies that the people who were praying were actually rebels. And God was not going to answer them. Indeed, they were going to be defeated by the Babylonians. God may, out of his mercy, answer a non-Christian when he or she prays, but he does not answer them out of his covenant. Only those who have a covenant with God have a promise that God will answer every time they call. Now, to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that Jesus began his sermon by saying, you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. He's not saying that everyone is the light of the world. Rather, in his followers, the citizens of his kingdom, they are, in fact, the light of the world. In the same way, the everyone in chapter 7, verse 8, is everyone who is his follower. Everyone who is in the kingdom of heaven, when he or she asks of God, will find that they will receive. For God does not neglect his children. So to review, this is a restricted passage in which those who have entered into the kingdom, through the mercy of God portrayed in the cross of Jesus, can go to him and are invited to ask whatever they wish of their heavenly Father with great boldness. Now, before we go on again, one more item. What are we to ask, and why is Jesus talking about this now? You know, the answer is found in everything he has been saying up till now. He's promised his followers that others will revile them and persecute them. He has commanded them to love their enemies. He has warned them against lust. He has commanded them not to divorce their spouses. He has told them to be generous with their finances, so generous that they might need to count on God to get them through. And in the last section before this teaching on asking, he has told his followers not to judge unnecessarily, meaning they are further vulnerable to be taken advantage of by other people. See, the very nature of being a disciple of Jesus is intended to drive us, his followers, into a relationship of vulnerability with him. And therefore, the life of following Jesus means that we're constantly in need of God intervening on our behalf. After all, Jesus himself would later teach in Matthew 10, verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. If God does not intervene on our behalf, we can't possibly survive. Now, to his disciples in desperate need, Jesus tells them, go to God and ask and seek and knock. In a sense, these three words are intended to be a threefold manner of urging them to pray. Each of these three words gives a fresh sense of what we are to do when we go to God in prayer. So the first word, ask, is rather straightforward. Now, this word, ask, would not seem like a strange word to Jesus' original followers. You know, the Old Testament is filled with these kinds of words. Let me give just one example. In Zechariah 10, verse 1, God speaks to Israel, who might have been anxious that in the time when the spring rains might have fallen and were essential for crops, Israel might have been anxious. 
What happens if the spring rains don't come and we don't get a crop this year? You know, if that happens, we're going to encounter a famine. To that, God speaks. Ask rain from the Lord in the seasons of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. And so God says, ask. You know, to ask requires a consciousness of need. In Luke 18, the difference between the Pharisees and the publican is that the Pharisee asks for nothing, and the publican literally pleads with God for mercy. See, asking assumes an inferior coming to a superior. Asking assumes need. Asking requires humility. The Pharisees had none of that. Indeed, all of us who do not ask are like the Pharisee. You know, the next word is seek. Now, in a sense, we might think that if we're seeking, we don't know where to find what we're looking for. But that's not the issue. It has been suggested that the idea of seeking is connected to the idea of wisdom. In Proverbs 8, verse 17, wisdom says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Now, putting these thoughts together gives us a sense that we don't always know exactly what to ask of God. I do know that God himself is wise enough to sort out our sometimes contradictory requests and give us what we need, but seeking implies that I am wise when I ask. Martin Luther said that to have prayed well is to have studied well. And so seeking might imply seeking the word to find what we should ask. And then comes the matter of knocking. This assumes that a door is closed and we need it to be open. Imagine all the impossible scenarios of our lives in which we have needs. And wisdom has told us what we need from God. But the everyday reality is that the door is closed. We hear the word, this is impossible. But Jesus, who passed through the disciples' locked door in the upper room, is able to open all doors. Ask, seek, knock, says Jesus to his disciples. This life of following him is intended to depend on God, and God richly provides. Ask, seek, knock. We hear these terms a lot in Christian circles. But what do Jesus' words mean here when it comes to how we ought to pray? Well, in his introduction, Dr. Neufeld has given us some great insights into what the Lord teaches us about humble dependence on God, and that as his children, we have the amazing privilege of a direct covenant relationship with him. When we come back, we'll wrap up this study on prayer with a lesson about the faithfulness of our Heavenly Father, who promises to provide us all that we ask in his name. This is our final week of Dr. Neufeld's series on the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. We hope you've been blessed by listening to this great series that is so applicable for all believers today. Did you know that you can also own all of these messages on CD for just $35, and it includes shipping and handling? Contact us to get your series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, on CD at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. After Jesus instructs his disciples on the importance of coming to God to, to ask and to seek and to knock, he gives a promise. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks will find that the door to the impossible is open. 
Now, these are very precious promises. Every child of God will want to lay hold of these things in faith, believing that God is not only able to do wonderful things, but that he is willing to do so. And that's the key. But having stated that God is willing, we're all aware that this kind of thing, well, to some of us, it's hard to believe. Is it really possible, as James 4.2 would later remind us, that we do not have because we do not ask? Is God really ready to give us far more than we have ever imagined up to this point? Well, listen carefully to Jesus' answer. First, he answers by asking his own questions. Which one of you, he asks, when his son asks him for bread, gives him a stone? You know, some Bible teachers have pointed out that there's a resemblance between a stone and an ancient cake of bread. You know, in the same way, the fish and a common eel in Jesus' day might have been thought of as a snake and might also have had a similar kind of resemblance. One thing was worthless and the other was necessary to live. They may have seemed similar at the outset, but of course they're not. And all parents understand that. The argument is here from the lesser to the greater. Since all parents understand this, how much more does your heavenly Father understand what you need? But here now is the second truth. The difference between parents and God is not simply that that God knows to a greater degree what we need than human parents do. The matter is one of morality or one of righteousness. Pay attention to what Jesus says in verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Now, this is a key part of Jesus' argument. I remember a number of years ago, there was a preacher who had made quite a reputation for himself by saying, Jesus never called any person a sinner, and I'm not going to either. But that statement does two things. First, it makes it seem like Jesus and the rest of the New Testament writers are at odds with each other or even openly criticizing each other. And second, it ignores what Jesus actually called people. Notice in verse 11, Jesus calls every loving human parent who nurtures and takes care of his or her children. He calls them evil. Now, he doesn't mean anything different than what the rest of the Bible takes for granted. According to Genesis 3, the entire human race fell into sin when Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation of Satan and rebelled against their creator. And since that time, says Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And Paul the Apostle would echo that theme in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are alike under sin. You know, the natural human tendency is now a downward tendency, not only to rebel against our Creator, but to to act in unrighteousness. We're self-seeking, and there is no peace in our paths. And yet, in spite of the universal human condition to be sold into sin, parents sold into sin still find ways of doing good to their children, assuring that their needs are cared for. Again, we're left with an argument from the lesser to the greater. If that's how fallen, sinful, God-hating, self-seeking parents treat their children, that is, with kindness and mindful of their needs, how much greater is the pure and undefiled Creator? the one who sent his son to redeem a people unto himself, how much more will the God who sent his son to suffer and die for us, will he not do so much more than a sinful parent will do? Consider that, says Jesus. God will give good things to those who ask him. And what kind of good things will he give us when we ask? 
Well, the word good reminds us of what what Jesus taught about common grace back in chapter 5, verse 45. There he reminded us, even to his own enemies, God still causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine. In other words, God provides in such a way that those who rebel are still taken care of. There's food on their tables, and they have the ability to produce wealth and to care for themselves. Again, we're reminded of the argument from the lesser to the greater. If God cares for his enemies, providing them with the basic necessities of life, how much more will he care for those whom he has purchased by the blood of his Son? And so we are called upon to approach the throne room of God and bring to him what we need. And as God calls us to pray, he comes to us with powerful promises. Ask, he says, and you will receive. Does this mean that God grants everything we ask for? You know, someone will wonder if the promises are too good to be true. Someone will say, you know, I prayed so hard for my wife not to die, but rather to be healed, and I didn't get what I asked for. How can Jesus say, ask and you will receive? Now, before I attempt to explain, let me for a moment recount times when God's people have asked great things of God and God has replied. You know, years ago, I was doing ministry in North Africa. And a pastor told me of a village in one of the North African countries. They were close to the gospel, and they hadn't had rain in a long time. I think it had even been for years. The village was desperate, and the pastor said, My God can answer and do things your God cannot do. And he prayed for rain in their presence, and it rained the very next day. See, I'm reminded of Elijah and the priests of Baal. I'm reminded of an incident of a Muslim woman I met while I was a pastor. Her son was very seriously ill, and she had been much in prayer, going to the mosque and pleading for the life of her son, but he only got worse. And one day in her desperation, she came to the prayer room of the church building where I was serving as a pastor. And alone and unobserved, she cried out to Jesus, confessing her sins and pleading for the life of her son. And he was healed that very day. See, one year later, she came to my office and told me that for the last year, she had come to the prayer room every week to thank Jesus for his power and his mercy. It was a privilege for me to to tell her the entire message of the cross and lead her into a prayer of repentance and, and lead her to surrender her life into the loving and gracious hands of the one who had paid for her sins on the cross. I could go on and on, and I'm tempted to. I could tell of a Sikh young man that I prayed for for who came back and told me, your God can do what no other God can do. But as I relate these stories, I still hold to my heart those who asked and seemingly have not received. What can I say to you? You are in the covenant of grace and you have asked. My dear brother or sister, you have received. Sometimes in his boundless wisdom, our God has answered in a way you may not have anticipated. And that's why you are called upon to also seek and to seek to know God's wisdom, and it will be given. You know, part of the life of prayer is the longing to know God and his wisdom. In attempting to understand the ways of God, we are well served to seek in two areas. First, we must seek by immersing ourselves in a daily diet of Scripture. Get back to the Bible and know what God says and what he's offering you. And second, we're well served to begin to observe what God is doing in our lives, realizing that God is meticulously sovereign in all things. 
You know, we've never been out of his immediate intervention in our lives in all things. Take note of what God has been doing and recognize his hand in your life. And finally, let's not let the closed doors in our lives become the determiner of what God would have us do. Yes, of course. It might be that God has a very different door than we had ever imagined. You know, I once knew a man who was called to missions in a country that did not need the skill set that he had as an engineer. You know what he did? He prayed about it, and he went back to school, and he earned a second degree, a medical degree, and went on to become one of the most effective missionary evangelists in that country. God had opened a door, but he needed to know where that door was. See, a closed door might be God's signal for us to invest somewhere we had never thought of before, or it might be God's call for us to stand in faith and to see the mighty hand of God. Some of us need to double down in prayer because this might become one of the moments of our greatest insights into the ways of God. You know, one other thing remains certain. The citizens of Christ's kingdom have access to God. And no prayer ever offered in the name of Christ and for his glory ever goes unanswered. And I can say this as someone who's been pastoring for many years. I've anointed many people to be uh, prayed for and healed uh, when I've anointed them with oil, as the Scripture instructs us to do. But I have always seen, even those who weren't healed, God has done a significant work in their lives. You can determine to become like Luther's dog. Wait before the throne of our master with expectation and in perfect trust. To God be the glory. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you hear us when we call. Thank you for the promises that we have been given. Thank you for the encouragement that you gave us to approach your throne of God with boldness. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we do have access before you. And thank you that we have a covenant that you have promised to hear those who call upon you in faith. Thank you for the promise of prayer. What a great lesson today on the power of prayer and seeking God in humility and dependence. It's been a reminder for us to focus on knowing and experiencing a growing intimacy with our Heavenly Father. None of us will ever perfectly trust God because of our fallen nature, but that's why we must look to Jesus and His teaching on prayer to give us encouragement and wisdom. I hope you've been blessed by this message from Dr. Newfeld, and be sure to listen tomorrow as we continue our series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, looking at the golden rule from Matthew chapter 7. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Since this ministry was founded in 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has carried on a strong legacy of teaching God's Word to as many people across our country as possible. The amount of stories and feedback that we get on a regular basis demonstrates how biblical teaching is truly impacting the lives of our listeners. Here's one example from a woman who wrote this personal note of thanks. She said, In the last 60 years, Back to the Bible has been my most important source of Bible teaching. First Pastor Theodore Epp every morning, then Pastor Wearsby, then Pastor Woodrow Crawl, and now Dr. John Newfeld. It's our hope that we can continue to represent a reliable source of Bible teaching to countless number of Canadians. 
So would you support us as we grow and expand our legacy for many, many more years to come? Your gifts help us to provide all of our Bible teaching audio resources for free to anyone, whether it's on radio, through our mobile app, podcast, online, or audio mail. To partner with us, please visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.